and welcome to episode 128 of Real Life Ghost Stories. How you do? To kick things off this week, we need to thank our newest Patreon subscribers. We would like to thank Lowbrow78, Patricia Austin, Caitlin Baxter Rath, Carrie Trurinsky, Beardy Man1905, Claire, Loki's Humans, Jen Giesewinch, Pamela Morin, Lord Dukeshire, Ashley Page, Ola Jasinska, Abigail Marie, Pocky Nightmare, Rye and Sus 98, Seth White, Jay, Joanne Simeone, Katie Mullen, Abby Horton, Catelyn or Caitlin, I would like to apologise if I said the wrong one, it may also be Caitlin Baxter Rath, I don't know which one it is and I'm sorry, I apologise in advance. Thank you for being our Patreon subscribers, we love you, we appreciate you every day. Which brings us to our film review this week. Our film review is Love and Monsters. Love and Monsters was released in 2020. It has 7 out of 10 on IMDb and 93% on Rotten Tomatoes. Would you like a synopsis? Yes, please. Seven years after the monster apocalypse, Joel Dawson, along with the rest of humanity, has been living underground ever since giant creatures took control of the land. After reconnecting over the radio with his high school girlfriend, Amy, who is now 80 miles away at a coastal colony, Joel begins to fall for her again. As Joel realises that there is nothing left for him underground, he decides to venture out to Amy despite all the dangerous monsters that stand in his way. So before we start this film review, I need to explain how and why we ended up doing this film. So we had another film in line, or I had another film in line, which was Run which is on Netflix and it's uh, it was advertised as a horror <laughs> with Sarah Paulson. It is not a horror film, okay? It is a psychological thriller and I really feel like people need to stop advertising psychological thrillers as horror films because there was just nothing supernatural about it at all. Like, I mean, it's scary, but scary because of the length of what humans can do, basically. I think it's because, without being too nerdy, but I'm going to be a nerd, I think it's because traditionally the slasher genre has fallen under horror as well. And that's always psychological thriller-esque. Oh, I guess that's probably true. So we decided not to do it because it was the, it's a great film, but it's the type of film where you just couldn't be lighthearted talking about it really. And I, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't feel like I wanted to get, have a really serious conversation about fabricated illness because I would have been really sad afterwards. And then we ended up watching Love and Monsters, which is also not a horror film because it is a comedy adventure film. So a bit of a faux pas this week, but we're here now. I say that it is a horror movie because monsters are creatures and this is about monsters. So you could argue it's a creature feature. You could argue it's a creature feature, which we had a very in-depth conversation about that afterwards. (laughs) Is this a creature feature? (laughs) So what were your thoughts on this movie? Uh, It's lovely. I really liked it. I really enjoyed it. It was funny. It had some good bits of monster action. It had a really cool, cute dog in it. And the monsters were cool. I just found it really uplifting and it didn't end how I thought it was going to end. So yeah, it was good. It's just fun. Like it's a fun movie. And I thought it was, I mean, there's, there's a bit of sex at the beginning. You don't actually see it. It's you, you hear it. It's very awkward for everybody involved, but I thought it was the type of creature feature. We're going to call it a creature feature. We're sticking with that, that you could watch with your kids like comfortably because it's, it's scary, but it's a, what's, what's the, they always say mild threat. I would call it. (laughs) <laughs> but it's an interesting little film and I think the guy that's in it who plays Joel Dawson is was in the Maze Runner. 
Yeah, that's where I recognise him from. Yeah, because I, I mm. was looking up the trailer on YouTube and I saw in the comments all these people being like, oh, there's Dylan again, like with these really personal comments about this Dylan character. And I was like, who the heck's Dylan? So then I looked it up on IMDb and I was like, oh, he's one of those teen heartthrob people. Okay, I get it. So he is actually a really good character, I thought. Yeah, really good character. I liked everything about his characterization. He's kind of like I would be in an apocalypse situation, the, the wimp that doesn't really serve a purpose. And uh, I feel like he portrays that character really well. Everything that he does along the journey develops him as a person, which I quite like. And not to be like psychological about it, because I don't want to make this too deep because it's not an incredibly deep film. I mean, it's it's a it's the world has been overtaken by giant insects and giant um, cold blooded creatures. That That's it. But he he talks about it from the very beginning, how he doesn't fight or flight. He freezes. And that's why he's not built for this world. And I thought that was really interesting because we, you know, in we often talk about fight or flight. But actually, there is a third response, which is to freeze. And he does that. He shows how that has nearly killed him numerous times. And it's a fun film. And it has a great, uh, a great, uh, not not subcast. What do I mean? Sidecast? Supporting cast. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Subcast. What is wrong with me? <laughs> so Meryl from The Walking Dead, who's, whose real name I can never remember. No, me either. But he's in it. And I said to Emma during the film, I was like, I'm finding this really hard to trust him because he seems to play players of characters all the time that you can't trust. Like even in Guardians of the Galaxy, you couldn't trust him. Oh, because he's one of the pirates in he's Guardians the of the Galaxy. Yes, yeah. he is. So he's he's a great character in it. And he's bopping along, living on land with a wee girl called Minnow, who is like this tough, tough little survivor. Did find her very annoying. I'm just going to say it. I found her very annoying. I didn't. I know you didn't. I don't know if I was, was meant to or maybe I was just feeling very intolerant at the time. But I just found her her attitude, her her can-do attitude quite quite annoying. Which feels a bit unfair to even say that. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I think the other good thing about this film is that it's something that we couldn't have had like even 15 years ago because the technology would have made it look really shockingly not convincing whereas we were at a point now where the technology is good so the monsters looked good like it's still hard to believe because they're so far out of the reaches of of what we encounter on a day-to-day basis but they were as realistic as a monster can be they're they're mutations of creatures that we know so it made it more accessible, I guess. And it did make me think about like how I would survive in a cataclysmic event. And I would imagine not very well. Like in the last week, we've seen Independence Day. And now this. And either the universe is trying to tell us something, that something is coming and to prepare or not prepare, as the case may be. Or how would we survive in that situation? And I really don't think very well. I would be one of those characters you see in the opening scenes of disaster movies where something big falls on them and squishes them. Oh yes, or they get like engulfed in a big wave or a fireball. Yeah, no, I, I, I would be, or we'd be those people stuck in a traffic jam. There's also a traffic <laughs> jam. You're stuck in a traffic jam, and you watch in the rearview mirror as the wave comes in, or you know the the ray from the aliens comes in, or whatever. That'd be us. So, what would you give this film out of five? This is a bit of a weird film review, and I'm sorry because it wasn't a horror. Definitely one that you can watch with your kids, but it was a fun movie. What would you give it out of five? Four. It's a very solid four for me. Me too. I'm going to give it a four too. I liked it. It was fun. I did think it was a bit long. I uh, felt like it went on a bit. Yeah, I feel like that was because both of us potentially weren't in the mood to watch it. I feel like because I'm not normally bothered by length of movie, but I did feel that that one was quite long and I don't think it actually had anything to do with the movie. It was more the fact that I wanted to do whatever I was planning to do after the film finished. Oh, fair. And it also wasn't the film we'd planned on watching either, yeah. which happened recently as well when we watched 
we watched uh, St. Maud for the film review and then realised that it just wasn't an appropriate film. So sometimes it does happen. It's not what we would normally do as a film review, but it's still a good movie and it's a fun movie and definitely a creature feature, I think, that you could watch with kids and they'd enjoy it and not, you know, have nightmares for the rest of their lives. Which brings us to our story this week. It can only be monsters. It's really not. <laughs> well, we didn't plan it, did we? So that's not surprising. No, it's really not monsters. I mean, it's it's not even remotely attached to monsters. So I'm sorry. However, we are going back to episode three of this podcast. Do you remember what episode three was? No. Episode three was the Banshee. Ah, okay. I don't, in fairness to me, I don't remember what episode 127 was either. So I have been looking for a book for a million years. Dan has heard this story so many times and heard me talking about it so many times. I remembered reading a book that I really loved and there was a really great chapter in it about the Banshee. In my search for this book, I went on all the forums on Reddit. I endlessly Googled, obviously not endlessly enough because I eventually found it. And I posted on my Instagram story last week about searching for this book with all the information I had on it. And the lovely Maidy Kay messaged me and said, it's Paranormal Ireland by Dara Defuicha, which it is. So the link to that book is in the description of this episode. But also in the process of that, I bought so many books that I thought it was <laughs> that it definitely wasn't. So this episode, there's uh, the, the the stories are adapted from two books. Which one is Paranormal Ireland by Dara Defuicha and the other one is called Irish Ghost Stories by a guy called Patrick Byrne. And the links to those are in the description of this episode. And also a really interesting Irish Times article. So today... We are deep diving into the world of the Banshee. Are you ready? No, the Banshee's scary. In episode three, we covered the legend of the Banshee, which is a staple in Irish folklore. We won't delve deep into the origins of the legend in this episode, as we have done before. But to refresh your memory, here's a simple explanation. The Banshee derives her name from the Irish ban, which means woman, and she, which means fairy. She is a part of fairy lore, but has much darker implications. She is a harbinger of death and is linked to Irish families with old Irish names. The most common version is that the members of the family will hear a horrific, long, drawn-out and inhuman wail of the deepest sorrow just before the death of a family member. The legend goes that if you hear her, you will not die, but a family member will. In some stories she has the ability to transform into a crow or a raven and will appear to families before a death. Or in other versions she appears in the form of three loud knocks that herald death. While many see it as folklore, there are swathes of people who still firmly believe that in the modern world she still screams her death knell to those families that she is attached to. Most Irish people will have heard someone in their lives tell a story of the Banshee at some point or another. My grandmother told a story many years ago of a little old woman who would appear in their shed when they were churning butter. They had no idea who she was or where she had come from, but they would always give her a portion of their butter and she would leave. In rural Irish society at the time, everyone knew everyone for miles around, and my grandmother genuinely believed that this mystery woman was some sort of fairy creature. There are, of course, many possible explanations for what the Banshee is. It's possible that she is simply an enduring legend, born of the ancient act of keening, 
where women would be paid to scream and howl at a funeral. It's also possible that there are so many friend-of-a-friend stories about her that she remains in the modern zeitgeist. There are some who claim that the people who hear the banshee are simply confusing the sound of a vixen in heat with the lamenting of a supernatural being. But I would argue against that one. The sound of a vixen in heat is definitely alarming, and I'll let you listen to it now. I'm sure that there are many people who would have heard this sound for the first time and genuinely thought that it was someone being murdered. But frankly, when you live in a rural area, you get used to the noise. But the sound of the banshee is something different. It is long and with no pause for breath. It sounds human, but also not. And it fills you with a feeling of sheer dread. It was the 1940s, in rural Mayo in the west of Ireland. The Dowd family were well used to odd goings-on on their land, because right in the middle of one of their fields was a fairy fort. Fairy forts are odd circular structures that are left in the middle of the fields since ancient times. They can be made of stone or made from earth, and sometimes they are marked by trees or vegetation growing in a perfect circle. The Dowd family knew the fort was there and also knew the consequences of interfering with it. The desecration of a fairy fort would provoke the good folk and no one wanted to endure their wrath. There were stories all across the land of people who had disturbed fairy forts and had years of bad luck or suffered sudden and mysterious deaths. The Dowd family would often see glowing lights on the bog in and around the fairy fort and they would acknowledge them, but didn't discuss them. Some things were better left unsaid. On the land, there also sat an old abandoned farmhouse, now nothing more than a stone ruin, and it was a regular occurrence, not just for the Dowds, but for the people in the local area, to see the whole cottage and the area around it lit up as though floodlit. The light would be powerful and unnatural, and no one ever found a reasonable explanation for it. David Dowd first witnessed the lights just before dawn one morning when he was setting off to work, and it was nothing short of brilliant. The whole cottage was lit up as though by electricity, and there were small lights flitting in and out and around, just inches above the ground. David knew it was the fairies, and though he watched in awe, he had no desire to get any more intimate with them. These fairies kept their distance from the family, and the family kept their distance from the fairies. But unfortunately, they didn't have the chance to navigate the Banshee in the same way. As she was tied to the family, 
in a way that was inescapable. David's first experience of her was a strange one and doesn't meet the criteria of what we understand as traditional banshee encounters now. In the 1940s in Ireland, a trip to the local town was a big deal. It was generally done on bicycle, and the elected family member would spend the majority of the day in the town to get as much done as possible before making the journey home again. It was dusk when David was cycling home, pedalling through the country lanes in the growing darkness. Ahead of him on the roadside, he noticed a figure that was slowly coming into view. He naturally assumed that it was someone also making their way home after a day of work, so thought little of it. Until he got closer, and realised that the figure was standing completely still. Just standing, and staring straight ahead on the side of the road. As David rode by on his bike, he noticed that it was an old woman, and she was wrapped in a black shawl and a headscarf. He didn't recognise her as a local, but again thought nothing more of it. He continued on his way, and 500 yards down the road, another figure loomed ahead. Another figure that was still and staring by the roadside. As David got closer, he realised that it was the same old woman as before. Evening, he said to her as he passed, feeling slightly unnerved but assuring himself that there was an explanation. She didn't respond, or flinch, and again David carried on but slightly more rattled this time. As he powered ahead, now picking up speed in his haste to get home before it was fully dark again, a figure loomed from the darkness, standing in the laneway of his neighbour's house. His heart began to pound in his chest. He knew before he even reached her that it was the same old woman standing silent and staring at the side of the road, wrapped in her black shawl. It was physically impossible for the same woman to have moved that quickly through the countryside, when the only way to get around was the lane that he was riding on, or through the fields. It was also highly improbable that three similar-looking old women would be repeating the same action at various points in his journey. David decided that it was not something he wished to pursue to find the answer to, and it was only later in life that he considered that it might have been his first encounter with the Banshee. It was 1953, and David was now 27 years old and had two weeks' holidays from work, and was using the time to do some building renovations to the family home. He was plastering one particular room, and was keen to get it finished, so worked late into the evening. It was 1am, and David was finishing up when it started. The sound of a wailing screech filled the room and made his blood turn cold. It was not an animal. He knew that. And he knew that whatever it was was standing outside the window, screeching. This area of Mayo was awash with Banshee stories so he knew exactly what he was hearing. In his 27 years of living and working in rural Ireland, he had never heard an animal make this sound. His heart began to pound, and he made the decision that if it was the banshee, he was going to be the one to see her. 
He left the room with the painful screaming still echoing around the house and made his way to the back door, grabbing a stick for protection as he went. He threw open the back door and the sound increased dramatically in volume and seemed to swell all around him. And nothing. David wasn't able to move. He stood frozen in the doorway, but not from fear. It was as if the sound was so powerful that he could feel it creating a barrier between him and the outside world. He stood there, rooted on the spot for what seemed like an eternity, until his mother's voice penetrated through the wail to tell him to stop what he was doing and get to bed. Even through the screams, he could hear the slight wobble of fear in his mother's voice. David closed the door and realised that his clothes were wet through and he was soaked in a cold sweat. And that night he slept a fitful sleep. A week later, David's brother Frank was killed in a motorcycle accident. They had another brother, John, who was living in Leicester in England at the time with his wife, Jane. The night before the accident, John and Jane were awoken by the sound of a motorcycle roaring through their bedroom. And this account is in no way an isolated incident. In episode 3, we recounted two tales of banshee experiences. One from a woman who was advised by the police to check on her loved ones after hearing the cry of the banshee. And one from my friend who has a banshee attached to her family. In 1986, university lecturer Patricia Lysacht wrote her book The Pocketbook of the Banshee and in it she too explored first-hand accounts told to her by people from all corners of Ireland. One such woman recounted an incident which was not only experienced by her but was experienced by her whole family. For farmers in Ireland, the period of time where cows are calving is an intense and exhausting period. It was during this time that our unnamed woman was up late on a Sunday night monitoring a cow and her newborn calf. She had been sitting by the fire having a cup of tea before checking the new calf and then she would go to bed. As soon as she stood up the wail began. She reported that her hair stood on end and the source of the unearthly cry was right outside the window. She stood and listened and tried to catch her breath and could hear the stirrings of family members throughout the house. Everyone was awake. Her father burst into the room and told her to go to bed immediately. But the cow, she said. She's just had a calf and she needs to be checked. Her father responded with an urgency that wasn't usual for him, and told her that the cow could wait. She was not to leave the house, and she was not to look out the window. Just go to bed. She did as she was told, and the next morning sat down with her father to ask him what happened. He told her that what she had heard was the banshee, and in the coming week, they received word that her father's first cousin had died suddenly in America that night. The banshee also caused a considerable amount of controversy in Ireland in 1893. On April the 8th, a letter was published in the Weekly Irish Times which was titled Where has the Banshee gone? In which the author lamented that they did not believe that the Banshee was heard in Ireland anymore and went on to briefly describe their own encounter. 
their question was well and truly answered when outraged letters winged their way to the Irish Times, each telling their own stories of their experiences with the Banshee. Minnie McEowen told a story about her father hearing the Banshee and then her great-aunt dying the next day. But she also added that there were no witches anymore, so maybe the lack of Banshee activity was related to this. Letter after letter outlined similar tales of screeching and then death. One told of a man on his deathbed who sat up, pointed to the window and said, You're there. I know you are. And just as he finished his sentence, the wails and cries began. A letter from a writer simply referred to as EOB read... To my mind, the advance of education and consequent diminution of superstition is quite sufficient to account for it. But so long as ignorance obtains in some part of the country, so long will the voice of the banshee be occasionally heard, or until some modern St. Patrick banishes all the cats, owls, peacocks, jackasses and laughing dogs from Ireland. This letter caused absolute outrage particularly at the seemingly classist nature of the response and the condescension of what EOB considered to be unsophisticated folly of the peasants. The letters continue thick and fast, with a man named Patrick Farrell writing his own letter of response in which he claimed to be a non-believer, whose experience had changed his mind completely. He had been away on business and wrote that, on my return I was astonished to find my greyhound trembling violently the cold sweat actually dripping off him. For some time I sought in vain for a solution to this strange occurrence, and after some time I heard coming from a bush in the middle of a small paddock at the back of my house a long, low wail, and then the most piteous sobbing I have ever heard. Being a disbeliever in banshees, ghosts, fairies, leprechauns and company, I was glad of an opportunity to test once and for all their genuineness. Farrell went on to say that he grabbed a stick and went in search of the fabled banshee and found instead a glowing white deer standing in the paddock wailing a human cry. He was confused and swung his stick at the deer. The stick passed straight through the animal and it let out a scream that caused Farrell physical pain. He retreated to the safety of his house and later learned that his cousin in Australia had died that same night. When I was researching for this episode, I realised that not much has really changed since the Great Irish Times debate of the 1890s. On internet forums, questions raised about banshees or people's experiences of them are met with both scoffs about backwards nonsense and earnest responses about people's real experiences. But the thing that fascinated me the most about this research was the frequency of discussions about animals. It is important to note that the Wailing of the Banshee is not the only death warning that exists in Ireland. We have previously discussed the Three Knocks as a warning for death, and there are families that report seeing warning lights prior to the death of a loved one. Stories of animals granting death warnings to families seem to run parallel with stories of the Banshee. The goddess Morrigan of legend had the ability to transform into a raven, and the tales of the banshee as a bird of death have endured, with there even being stories of her perched on a window ledge like a bird as she cries. 
we started today's episode with foxes, so it seems only fitting that we should end with them too, because they too seem to have earned the reputation of being harbingers of death. Gormanston Castle is located in County Meath and now operates as a school, but it wasn't always that way. The castle used to be the seat of the Preston family, or the Viscount Gormiston. In 1860, Jenico, the 12th Viscount, lay dying, and the family and staff knew that he did not have long left. People began to report seeing shadows darting in and out of the tree line of the woodlands that surrounded the house, and odd chirps and screeches could be heard all around the castle. The chirps and screeches grew louder and more urgent, and the shadows moved into full view. They were foxes, and they moved closer and closer to the house as the days went by. Foxes would gamble and play in the open grassy areas around the house, and the older foxes would sit and watch the castle. They would chatter and bark to each other, and chatter and bark in the direction of the castle. In ordinary circumstances, you would assume that the family would be curious or disturbed by this behaviour, but they weren't. They paid little attention to the foxes that inched ever closer because they knew exactly what it meant. For many years, the Gormanston foxes would appear at the castle just before the death of the Viscount. As the days passed, the number of foxes grew. They would always arrive in pairs and sit solemnly at the window of the sick Viscount. They barked and howled at the window and were particularly active at night time. What is even stranger about this incident is that during this time the foxes would pass among the poultry of the castle and never attempt to eat them. The dogs would happily allow the foxes to gather around the castle and showed absolutely no signs of distress or aggression at their presence, whereas ordinarily the presence of even one fox would elicit a response from the dogs. This behaviour would continue until after the funeral, at which point the foxes would simultaneously make their way back to the woodland, not to be seen again until there was another sick viscount. This behaviour was noted with the passing of each viscount right up until the 1940s, when the building changed hands to the Franciscan brothers. But why this strange behaviour? Local legend says that there had been a Viscount many years before, who was leading a fox hunt on the land. He had cornered a fox, and was moving in for the kill when he realised that the fox was a vixen who was desperately protecting a litter of tiny cubs. He was so moved by the sight and felt such immense guilt at his behaviour, that he stopped the hunt, allowed the fox to escape, and fox hunting was never practised on the grounds again. It is said that the foxes appeared for the first time when that Viscount was taken ill. He died a few days after the foxes appeared, and the family adopted the fox on their coat of arms. I would like to point out before Dan says anything that I did not mean gambling as in playing poker or roulette or betting on the races. 
I meant gambling as in playing around because when I read that word I looked at Dan and his face was a picture because I know that you were imagining dogs playing poker that's not what was happening okay even though that would be a very great story and it would be very supernatural and strange that's not what happened I just imagine him getting together and having a big old celebration that the Viscount's on his way out. And I kind of thought, you know, good party has like alcohol and gambling. So I just figured that's what they were doing. <laughs> no, I can tell you that no, that was not what they were doing. <laughs> so what do you think? I knew there was like, I remember, because as you were reading, I was sort of triggered back to episode three and some of the stuff we talked about. And I remember there being that really horrifying image of her being on her haunches like a bird. But I didn't realise there was so many links to animals with the Banshee lore. No, me neither. Well, I mean, I didn't. I knew about the raven and stuff. People would talk about how animals responded in their stories. And that story of the Gormanston foxes was in the same chapter, the same section of a book of Irish ghost stories, as well as the story about the family who saw lights whenever somebody in their family was going to die. So I just find it's kind of, I'm going to be really rogue and say that the the research that I did this week kind of changed my perspective a little bit on the Banshee and I will explain why in a few minutes. It wasn't just the fox though, was it? Because that, that gentleman saw the white stag as well. Mm, yeah, and he described it as being milk white and glowing, which was a really weird description. Yeah, milk white is a very different white to like, because I've seen white deer before, because that does happen. It's just like yeah. a genetic mutation, isn't it, of their colour. But milk white is a very different description and i've definitely never seen a deer glow i've also never seen a deer cry like a human but animals as you heard with the fox noises animals make weird sounds <laughs> those those vixen noises were actually in some ways more terrifying than anything you read in this episode i didn't realize like i've heard them in real life but didn't they sound way more terrifying out of context like when you're just listening to a recording you're like what is that definitely if i woke up in the middle of the night and i heard that sound uh, now, as an adult who grew up in the countryside, I would listen to it, probably be freaked out for about 10 seconds in my sleep state trying to figure out what was going on. And then I'd be like, oh, it's a vixen and I'd go back to sleep. But it is a terrifying sound out of context, especially the second recording where she's just screaming. And that is that's a recording of two. It looked like a, a territory fight between two foxes, basically. And that screaming sound was like a, a, a panic or a warning. I don't know which it was, but my God foxes are terrifying when they make sounds i think when you listen to that recording there's way more weight in the argument where, like people being dismissive and saying oh it's just a, a vixen screaming or whatever because it's so it's such an alien sound like this isn't someone saying oh you saw an owl we know that doesn't hold any weight but like i could almost say well yeah maybe you know if it was if you heard something and you hadn't yet had anything to confirm that it might be a banshee you could easily go mm, yeah maybe it was a vixen because the vixens just make weird noises and you but the other side of that is you can easily understand that if you had never heard that sound before mm. and you suddenly were in a rural area and you heard a vixen either barking because she's in heat or screaming because she's fighting oh my god you would absolutely hear that and think that is somebody being murdered or if you're maybe if you're in rural ireland you've never been there before you'd be like oh my god is that what the Banshee sounds like? I can understand how people genuinely hear would hear a vixen or an animal like that and think that it's something supernatural. Definitely. So I did wonder after doing this episode, after listening to foxes barking and, and whatever, are some of the cases, I'm not saying all of them, but I wonder are some of them actually just mistaken identity? 
Yeah, the problem is, though, I think all the cases that are reported are then followed by death, in which case you kind of like, is it how many coincidental vixens can you have? Unless the vixens are the banshees. That's a little bit of a curveball, isn't it? Well, that just... That, <laughs> that took me by surprise. <laughs> I wondered doing this episode because I didn't realise that some families claimed to have lights. I didn't realise the story of the Gormanston foxes. Like I, I just had no idea of those stories. So like historically, Irish people leave Ireland a lot. So like during the famine, a huge percentage of the population either died or emigrated to America, predominantly America. But, you know, historically, Irish people have gone all over the world, even in recent years when the economic crash happened. Like Irish people of my age, you know, my generation, so many of them left and went to Australia, to America, everywhere, all over the world. And I don't know if maybe people felt so disconnected from their own families. So you had cousins in America, you had cousins in Australia. And when one of those cousins died, you needed a way to feel like more connected to them. Because death is this kind of a celebration in Ireland. You know, when people die, like we have a wake we have it, it's a bit it's a quite an intense process it's a big celebration people drink they get together they eat you don't get to do that when your family are the other side of the world so i wonder if it's a case of coincidences right where there was a death and people go oh but i heard that noise that must have been a warning that my loved one was going to die because it's generally loved ones who are far away that's what the stories that that's what what they focus on is you know, or they got word that their their cousin in England died. So I did have that thought when I was researching. What about the first gentleman, though? Is there just a lot of identical old ladies on the long stretch of road out at night? Triplets. Yeah, or is that a banshee? Because that, that was odd. It is. It, that was a weird one. And I liked it because he added... So I started with that story, but in the real version of that story, he added it in as an afterthought. And only in later life did he think, oh, I wonder, was that the Banshee? I don't know that I think it was the same thing. I don't think that I do. And it, it, that's why I included the bit about my Nana's story about the little old lady who used to come when they were churning butter and they would give her butter and she would go away. Um, like, But my, my Nana believed that that was a fairy woman. Like genuinely, this little small old woman and they were all terrified of her, but they'd still give her butter and she'd go away. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you gave, if you were scared of something, so say like a massive monster knocked on your door and you gave it like a Kit Kat and then it it went away. And then the next time it arrived, you gave it a Kit Kat and it went went away. You would continue to do that thing because you knew that it got you the most positive outcome in that the thing goes. (laughs) And they wouldn't want to, you know, because they were superstitious they wouldn't want to risk not giving her anything because it was traditional to leave offerings out for the fairies so that they'll leave you alone. But I did wonder if um, David Dowd and his family, because they lived on what they believed and they perceived to be magical land, that they just had more magical happenings than the, than the average person because they lived on land that they thought was, you know, cursed or influenced by fairies. So... We're saying it's not a banshee, but I want to know, what do you think the purpose of that old woman reappearing? Was it just like a, hey, we're here. Just you remember we're here. Yeah, I wonder. I don't know. Maybe it was. Maybe it was just a, I'm going to do something weird and I'm going to show you that I'm here and I'm going to show you how powerful I am. Don't you forget it. On your bike. 
The next time I come knocking for butter, you better give me some. Yeah, you better give me some butter, okay? Because that's well known that fairies love butter. That's that's a well known fact. <laughs> and the thing with the thing with Banshee's stories is that they're very samey. A scream, a death. Most people don't see her. There was a story that I read where a man was, which I don't know why I didn't include it, but a man was cycling home and the banshee ran alongside him the entire way. No, no, no. I'm glad you didn't read that one. Thank you. She ran alongside him the entire way, clapping her hands and screaming. So there's different kind of variations. And some people say that she's quite excited when she's when she's wailing, like she might be clapping her hands and like, you know, quite happy about. I mean, I guess if that's your only job. You'd want to, you'd probably be quite pleased that you've got a job to do. You know, if somebody's dying, you might be like, yes, now is my time to shine. But I guess if we spoke about, didn't we, previously, where there's some kind of link to Keenan, like to, to professional Keeners, and having, you know, lots of alcohol, maybe they were happy. Yeah, they probably were happy. They were probably <laughs> thinking, oh, brilliant, I'm going to get some putching out of this or whatever. And But then the story about the um, the Gormiston foxes is is one that I just found really fascinating really fascinating and interestingly so in the 1940s the viscount that supposedly died in the 1940s the locals didn't believe that he actually died because he had gone to war and he never came back but the foxes never gathered so the locals said he didn't die because the only way because they knew that if he had died the foxes would have gathered and they didn't Mm -hmm. so they said he's still in europe on continental europe somewhere alive well, like like Lord Lucan, it's that kind of mystery, isn't it? The miss, the missing no, nobility or whatever they're called. I like those kind of things. So, if the story of the foxes is true, and I, from what I could gather, they documented it from each viscount from a very, very long time previously. Well, I remember reading something a while ago, and in my head, it was about foxes gathering for funerals, not of people, but for family members, in a similar kind of way that elephants do the whole memorial thing but having just googled it they don't do that i just made that up they've just there's just been instances where foxes have been seen to be burying members of their family dead members of their family obviously so that theory goes out the window because it's i made it up (laughs) (laughs) it's not even a real theory it's just an imagining really (laughs) but i wonder if it's something to do with like mating season but then there'd be scrap there'd be way more scrapping that's a bit different to gambling or whatever that word was you used. Uh, but I wonder as well if over the years the story has been added to because they talked about how the foxes would pass among the chickens and they wouldn't they would never try and eat anything around the time and also they talked about how the dogs didn't attack them and it was all very reverent. You know, it, it, there there was a reverence to it that we don't see in the animal kingdom, right? So I wondered if that was added afterwards and maybe there was some bizarre incidences where actually the viscount happened to die around the time that the foxes were mating because it does say they always came in pairs yes however there's only so many fox related coincidences you can have in one episode surely (laughs) you can't just say you can't just say like oh it's coincidentally a vixen was in heat and then your family member died. Coincidentally, all these foxes rocked up and then a Viscount died. At some point, there's got to be some truth to it. And the other thing I would say is if you're if you're an ability, you've probably got dogs, plural. You probably hunted with those dogs. I don't think foxes could get away with ma- gathering en masse and not being chased off by dogs. 
No, definitely not. And you're right. Like those, they would have been hunting dogs. Definitely. Without a doubt. Yeah. So I don't, I just found the story really fascinating. And I don't know if I, I've ever heard a story like it really in terms of a wild or a group of wild animals that gather and seem to know when the Viscount is going to die. It assumes a sentience in animals that we haven't previously considered. And that is, uh, that is mad. Is fox hunting a thing in Ireland? Uh, yes, I believe so. So I've got a theory for you. Okay. What if it is coincidence, but it's for a reason. So the Viscount has become sick and therefore fox hunting has stopped for a period of time, which potentially means the fox population is bigger than it would be and they get bolder because we know foxes are bold. Yeah, and they're clever. I mean, that's a really long-winded theory, but I'm just It's a long-winded theory, but then as far as I was aware, they had stopped fox hunting on the land after that first Viscount didn't kill that vixen. So... I mean, potentially they they did just have a population boom of foxes. Or maybe it just never happened at all. You know, I just, I don't know. Yeah, I feel like it, I feel like it's, sometimes these things are too big to just not be real. Like the locals would have known about this legend, right? But, yeah. And what do they have to gain from him reinforcing it? I mean, it was the locals that said in the 1940s, he's definitely not dead because the foxes haven't gathered. But is that a legend that's just passed down from generation to generation? Who's actually seen it? Like who has seen this? If you live in Gormanstown and you've got grandparents there, can you please ask them if this is a thing? Is there still a Viscount? No, because it's a school Oh, of course, yeah, because it's a school. So that means there's no position. So there's no chance of ever seeing it again then? No. Oh, it's lost to history. It's kind of sad. Yeah, it's a Franciscan school now. So which is uh, just a religious school, basically. Um, so there's no chance of ever seeing it again. We have to therefore presume it was true. <laughs> and if you enjoyed today's episode, you can find everything you need to know about us on reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. You can send your own spooky story to reallifeghoststoriespodcast at gmail.com. You can support us on Patreon, where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content. That is patreon.com forward slash reallifeghoststories. The links to all of the sources used in this episode are in the description. And on that note, we shall see you next week. Bye.